Welcome to the Expression Over Perfection podcast, the show where we talk about creativity, psychology, and what it means to be human. I'm your host, Jesse Sussman, and I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we have an extraordinary show for you, featuring Cyana Wand. Cyana is an embodied healing coach, and she specializes in compassionate, body-centered recovery from complex trauma and attachment wounds. I've been following Cyana's work for a while now, and she has so many profound insights on healing, being human, embodiment, and the integration of the intellectual and the somatic. I highly recommend following Cyana on Instagram, at Cyana Wand, and you can also learn more about her and her work at her website, cyanawand.com. Links to both are in the show's description. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. We had such a fun and illuminating conversation that explored the intersection of art, healing, trauma, and creating safety through expression. If you're an artist or creative, I think there's a lot here that might resonate with you. But this conversation isn't just for practicing creatives. It's for anyone who wants to step more fully into their authentic expression, whatever form that takes for you. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Cyana Wand. Cyana, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. Me too. I mean, we have so much to talk about. Um, I just really admire your work for speaking to what it means to be human in so many ways that honor the complexity of that. And um, I'm excited to talk about the intersection of creativity, trauma, and insecure attachment with you because I know you have a lot of insights on the intellectual side and the somatic side and the part of the intellectual side that doesn't usually want to acknowledge the somatic side and bridging all those together. So um, why don't you um, tell us how you got to that point or, or where maybe inspire us for trying to honor that connection more than we often want to? Yeah. Yeah. Let me see if I can do that question justice. <laughs> you know, I think that for a lot of us, when we start exploring um, what we might term healing, right? There is this, there's this desire to compartmentalize and make it really neat and tidy, you know? And a lot of what we've known so far about psychology and healing has been pretty mind-based, pretty intellectualized, pretty cognitively based. And so there's been a lot of push toward integrating the body and more of a somatic component of that, right? Like, you know, you hear mind-body healing. I'm sure that's a term you've heard before. But I think that we don't totally know what that means, right? And so when we start to come to this work and we start to explore, like, what is what does my body mean to me? And in, in what ways does it allow me to live fully and thoroughly in this world? I think that there's... Um, there's kind of a block there for a lot of us, right? And so we kind of, again, move back up into our mind, the intellectual space of understanding ourselves. But what I am interested in is, is the idea that so much of our unconscious material lives in our body, in our nervous system, in the ways that we respond and then we react to the world and the ways that we see the world and, and that kind of unique blueprint that is ours through our lived experience. And so I find the intersection between creativity and, and the soma to be so fascinating because what we know about creativity is it's like, it's this, it's like life force, right? It's life force expressing itself. And it's, it's something out of nothing almost. And obviously those of us who, who 
create, we know that there's this, there's this very complex process that goes on, but what it looks like was there was nothing and now there's something. And so in order for us to bring the unconscious material that we could call creative force upward and out into the world, we have to be in touch with that, right? But when we have lost touch with our bodies, with the soma, where that sort of unconscious aspect of ourselves lives, then we get kind of cut off, right? We feel kind of blocked. We don't feel that life force moving through us. We don't feel it expressing. We don't feel what it is that we and it want to say. And so then we start coming at our creativity from this intellectual perspective, right? And when you start, (laughs) I'm sure you know this, but when you start coming at creativity from your mind, (laughs) things get really jammed in a hurry, right? Um, And so I find that in, in accessing and learning to be with our bodies, including all of the pain and discomfort and potentially trauma that they hold, and moving through that and learning how to do that in a safe, secure kind of way, we open up the parts of us that have been wanting to express, but that have not felt safe enough to do so. So that's kind of the intersection that I find really, really fascinating um, in this work. Awesome. I mean, there's, there's so much there that I, it's like, I'm going to have to choose to do surgery on which parts to, to respond to. But um, that's, that's beautiful because um, it sounds like in the beginning, the way that we understand a lot of the world around us and our creative work is almost through um, intellectualization, but on a level that is mostly uh, brute force and maybe clenching and rational mind. And it really denies the existence of the unconscious mind because it's invisible. It's like we think we're a car that only operates on the level of everything that you can see while denying everything that including the pain and the evolutionary systems that have been functioning for hundreds of thousands of years to allow us to exist and survive. So we only are able to identify with the parts that we see. Like you were saying, there are so many maybe networks that are offline if we deny that they exist. And once we can reconnect those networks to the ones we already identify with, we can start to embody more of our life force and change the way of how we see our creativity, uh, for specifically in, uh, if we're always using it on an intellectual level, we might try to write the next great American novel whenever we sit down. And that can be a very limiting experience. Tell me, tell me what you think about this. Can we learn to relate to our creativity and ourselves as human beings on a level that brings, how, how would you start that process of making that first of all identifying that the unconscious mind exists in the first place that it is something that we want to connect with and then to start that integration process to fully embody ourselves yeah oh man good question i think in order to get to the place where we're able to accept sort of our unconscious aspects right we've got to do a lot of cultural deconditioning you know i mean and and i won't spend too much time on that but we have to understand that our culture specifically modern western culture is is not one that either um acknowledges or values the more fluid complex aspects of unconscious maybe what you would call you know maybe what is coming up these days is kind of like feminine masculine dynamics right and not necessarily gender specific but as an energy and so there is this experience where we are 
as a culture, undervaluing the very things that allow us to express, right? And so number one, I think that we we have to start looking at what were the messages I received about um, my emotional nature, my sensory nature, my instinctual nature, right? Because again, that's kind of where that unconscious part of us lives in that middle and back brain where we are being um, run by our emotional centers and our sensory centers. And so first I would say, start looking, you know, what, how is it that you feel toward that part of you, the emotional part of you, the part of you who feels sensation, the part of you who doesn't understand all the mysteries of life, the part of you who doesn't think linearly in black and white, and potentially looking at what were the messages you received around that as probably a child when you were in those formative years, right? But once you've kind of done that and you've started to deconstruct this idea that there is that logic and ration and, um, you know, sort of left brain dominated culture is better, right? When we get out of that hierarchical nature and we kind of flatten that a little bit and we learn that there's not better or worse, there's just different. There's this part of me and this part of me. Then we can start to integrate what that means to us, right? And so that might mean. That might mean learning simply to be with what is. I mean, I think that that is such a foundational aspect of the creative process. Because to your point, it's like if we go, if we sit down at the table, or we, you know, go to the the musical instrument, or we we sit down in front of the canvas, and we have a a constructed view of what we're trying to bring into the world then we miss out on that co-creative aspect, right? Where life force is wanting to express through us, but not necessarily in the way that we are hoping or needing it to look like, right? And so if we can come at it from, I'm learning to be with what is. And when I learn to be with what is, I learn to respond to what is. And that in and of itself creates something new. I think that that is a great place to start is learning how to just be with what's in our body and not needing to change it or mold it or fix it or perfect it or validate it or make it be the world's best, whatever it is. Right. Does that make sense? Totally. I love that because that's, it speaks to so many points of accepting yourself as a human being and accepting yourself as an artist. Mm -hmm. And it's tempting to think that art is created through genius and that expression is conscious and that it is willed to genius and all these romanticized notions about how artists create art and how humans create things that are then celebrated in our culture that are honestly, um, despite what the intentions are, good or bad, everywhere in between, just confusing blueprints that muddy it up about what it means to listen to the things that are in us keeping the channel open to um, the creative process as it unfolds without having a certain level of uh, dogma or dictator um, ways of, of that process unfolding. And one of the premises that you touched on um, in, in the book that I'm currently writing is that the creative process is the process of collaborating with ourselves mm. and that that's how we learn to make space for everything that is arising within us or even even the parts of us that doesn't want to make any space for everything within <laughs> us. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. And I 
I want to touch on something you just said because I really liked it. But um, you know, it was sort of this idea that when we bring ourselves into the to to our creative process with a sense of dogma or the way that it needs to be, I think that's such a beautiful metaphor for how we show up as humans too, right? I mean, this is so much of the work that I do with my clients is really just stepping into the place of sovereignty and stepping out of the place of this is the way that I need to be a human, right? And whether we grew up in a cultural system or a family system or a religious system, the likelihood is that we learned rules for being human. Yeah. And to some extent, this is useful, right? We call it socialization. It's important to understand (laughs) that, that this is the way that we impact one another. But on the other hand, so much of our culture has been built upon moralization of human behavior, right? And what that does is it teaches us right, wrong, good, bad. And there is the very correct way to be a human. And, and as such, there is a very correct way to be an artist, which is, is can I swear on this podcast? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> which is total fucking <laughs> bullshit, right? It, it's, it's absolute bullshit, but, and, and it disallows us from stepping into our sovereignty. Whether that's as a human, as a human being, or as an artist, I think that we have to be able to to individuate away from what has been given to us to find what feels real for us. And and look, it's probably going to match what feels real for a lot of other people because we're we're humans. We are both the same and different. But without that, um, without that sovereignty, without that ability to to know what is real for us we're going to probably struggle along that journey. And maybe we find ourselves trying to create something that is so new or so different or so amazing because we're actually looking to validate our own sovereignty. You know what I mean? So beautiful. I mean, the moralization is, you can see that manifesting in so many ways. And I'm not sure completely if this is accurate, but my theory would be that a lot of our inner critic is an unconscious response to the moralizing frameworks that we've oh for sure have been ingrained within us mm-hmm. and but when you don't have the ability to recognize or see that because it usually takes many years to get to that process you just turn everything against yourself and it becomes more fuel for the inner critic because it's not that uh, we are survival based creatures that adapt to a highly complex society that uh, can use certain Um, moral imperatives to get behavior in a certain way. It's that we're not enough. We're bad. We're not good artists. Nobody likes my art. And the the answer to all of those, the reasons for why that happened when we're in that space of reasoning is that it's our own inadequacy. Yeah. Well, and so often that stems from internalized unmet needs as children, right? There is this internalization of I don't totally know how to make my way in the world. I don't totally feel seen and valued and heard and understood. And this is what this is like that fascinating um, sort of intersection, right, between creativity and that the creative life allowing that to express in us, and also sort of the negative core beliefs or those shame based beliefs that we have about ourselves that we internalize as a result of never having someone say, This is your life, it's yours. You get to do whatever you want with it. How do you feel about that? What's going on? And someone validating and reflecting our internal world in a way that made us understand, yes, I have value as a human being. And and this is what my internal world looks like. Let me show it to you, right? And so, yeah, I think you're spot on. It's um, as as we individuate and as we pull away from this 
moralized perspective on what it means to be a human, there's more space to play, right? There's more space to, to express and, and, and play and fail and figure stuff out. And it becomes more, again, creative than it does black and white, linear, step-by-step. This is where you're going. This is where you should be. This is how you should end up kind of thing. I love that. Because then at that point, almost authenticity or just being seen is, is no longer a threat. It's almost uh, an experience or a luxury to be able to share your work from a place that is uh, not based on a moral framework of, I am either going to be as successful as Oprah, or I'm going to be living in a cardboard box for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> or I don't even need to be putting the commercialization of my work or how people are responding to it or how many likes it's getting or how many people are telling me that it's genius, et cetera, into the equation at all. Because then it's just, I am uncertainty dancing on a canvas because I enjoy to do that and I'm honoring the full sovereignty of my humanity. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. You're just life dancing at that point. I think, I don't know where I heard that recently, but someone talked about life. Oh, I think it was, um, it was in a, it was in a book, but he was talking about, um, life dancing with itself, Gay Hendricks. Right. And he was talking about actually in this, in this case, love, you know, between two partners, but it's the same thing, right? Because your relation, you're in relationship with whatever it is you're creating, you know? And so it's, it's, again, it's life dancing with itself in that moment. And I think I just want to say though, too, that if we, if we do find ourselves seeking validation for our existence through our art, through our creativity, that's okay too. You know, that's okay too. That's not, that's not something to be ashamed of. I've done that. I'm sure you've done that. I think everyone has probably done that at one point or another. And to me, what that says is, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm seeking for something here, right? I'm seeking for something. But the reason that I'm seeking is because I haven't been met in that way yet. And so I think that is where it becomes really important to learn how to meet ourselves, to learn how to validate and see and enjoy and um, meet, meet ourselves in the place of, hey, look what I just did. This is so cool. This is amazing to be able to really enjoy what it is we bring into the world because chances are if we're seeking for that externally, it's because we weren't met there in, in, in an adequate way that we needed to be when we were forming our self-concept around who we are and what we bring here. You know what I mean? Thank you so much for that caveat because that is so important. And I just want to say that I was, I've totally been there for so many years of my life of when I sit down, I'm going to write the greatest song of all time. And then everybody's going to love me. Women are going to love me. My total middle school experience is going to be different. My high school experience is going to be different because I'm going to live it from a place of having arrived. It's like I'm putting all the pressure on my art to be some kind of golden ticket to the life that I imagine is some nirvana, bliss-fueled, happy state that is like the after picture, where the before picture was just so many years of suffering and confusion. And that is a natural, like you said, a natural conclusion to to come to that, you know, it it makes sense that you would think that way. Um, and it's normal that you think that way as part of the process to try to escape your own suffering. Yeah. But I want to, like you said, uh, and I'm going to quote one of your posts that I think touches on this. You wrote, when we view pain as pathological, we're more likely to get caught in complexes that tell us we need to rescue 
save or fix ourselves and others. End quote. And I love that you made that distinction because you can get along this process and have a certain amount of awareness as an artist that you're so self-critical and putting so much pressure on yourself. And you can even see that as another way to, or more evidence of your own inadequacy because you can't see the, the next step. What would you say about that? And what, would you, what advice would you give to somebody who finds themselves there? Yeah. Oh man, that's such a good point. Cause yes, I see this all the time. Like <laughs> there, we, we are bringing a wonderful amount of awareness to ourselves in this moment in time. Right. And that's beautiful. But even that to your point can become one more vehicle for inadequacy. It's like, I'm, I feel ashamed and now I'm ashamed that I feel ashamed. <laughs> right. And I, it's like, doesn't really matter what the vehicle is whether it's creativity or, or body image for someone or a relationship for another. It's, we all have those same vehicles that we use. Like you said, this is going to be the, the place that gets me from here to when I have arrived, when I will be enough, when I will, when I will finally be adequate, right? And so um, I think you know, to answer your question, so much of what we're talking about here is the journey of and and people don't like this when I say this, <laughs> but it is the journey of learning to accept life as it is right now, including yourself. And I get that that feels and can sound very cliche. So I want to expand on it in a way that that doesn't, um, because I think that sometimes I get pushed back. Like, well, I don't want, I actually don't, number one, I don't really want to accept where I'm at lady. Like that's why I'm doing this work right? Where I'm at sucks. So fuck you. <laughs> um, and it's like, I get it. I totally get it. And also um, there is sort of the like, well, that's very cliche, right? I mean, if we accept everything, then how would we ever get better? And so those are the two fears that I hear coming up the most. And so, so let me expand, right? In order for us to decide to move out of a place where we're at, we must be able to accept it. And acceptance doesn't mean like it. Let's clarify that, right? Acceptance simply means acknowledging that it's here. So I think that one of the most important things we can do is simply to acknowledge without judgment. I'm noticing that I feel super ashamed right now. I feel inadequate. I don't feel good enough. And there's a part of me who doesn't like that because it makes me feel like I'm not even doing that correctly, right? And as we do this, what happens is we integrate. So is it okay if I go into a little bit of trauma talk? Please do. Yeah? Okay, cool. All right. When we experience some kind of trauma, whether that is shock trauma, as in like one huge overwhelming event, you know, maybe like an accident or um, an episode of abuse or violence or something, assault, or it's more uh, developmental, right? More complex. It's kind of just day in, day out, the things that we aren't getting and the things that we aren't getting that we need to, to develop. Regardless, what happens is the brain compartmentalizes. Okay, so it's the experience of either not having what we need or having too much too fast. Both of those are overwhelming to our nervous system. So, in order to deal with that, that that intensity and that overwhelm, the brain compartmentalizes. We call it fragmenting in in the like psycho, the psychology world. But what it means is that the brain compartmentalizes into the part that is experiencing the trauma and the part that is experiencing normal life. And so we get a, a split, a splitting of, of kind of who we are and our emotional experiences. And so what that means later down the road 
is that we, we, we push away the parts of us who are experiencing pain because we just don't know what to do with it, right? The likelihood is that we have an insecure attachment. There's probably not anyone there walking us through this process and we just don't know how to digest and fully integrate and resolve the emotional experience we're having. So we clamp down on it and we push it away and we like literally like a box in the, in the corner, we just shove it away. That part of me doesn't exist. I don't really want that part. And so that's what I see so often coming up with the inner critic is it as a pushing away, right? It's a pushing away of all the parts that we don't want. I don't want to be this thing. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to have these feelings. I don't want to have this experience. So when we name and acknowledge what is going on for us, um, whatever it is, what we're doing is we're welcoming those parts back in. We are reintegrating. And when we reintegrate, we're also operating from a whole brain, right? Very, very cool. It's like the compartmentalized brain now becomes whole. And when we be, start operating from the whole brain, that's when we can actually move forward as a whole person versus part of us moving forward and part of us staying behind. And then that kind of feeling like a tug of war for the rest of our life forever, right? So when we start working with the inner critic, I think the most important thing we can do is number one, learn some internal boundaries. Like, hey, I see that you have something to say here. It's probably in service of my protection. Can you find a way to say it that doesn't degrade me? Right? Because we can do that. We can dialogue with our parts. (laughs) And also acknowledging and naming what happens. Because as we do that, there is an automatic owning of our story. And when we own our story and we own who we are and we own everything we've been through, again, that is the place where those authentic expressions come from. And the inner critic starts to quiet down because when we feel authentic, we're satiated, right? There isn't that drive to perfect and to better and to, to cut down because we're having a, a neurotransmitter experience of satiation. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? I know that was kind of a long-winded way around that, but... No, it's, it's so important because you, you're, I think we all operate from a framework growing up that doesn't doesn't have awareness that this process is taking place. Mm-hmm. And when we're presented, if we're lucky enough to be presented with any evidence that it is, we try to push that away too, because then we have to face the reality that there's a whole part of our brain and body that have been working under our level of agency, despite whether the fact that it is trying to keep us alive and you yeah. know keep us functioning in uh, healthy ways it's almost like it's an insult to an already aggravated self that mm-hmm. a lot of the needs that uh, that are coming up unconsciously or that we have been fragmented are normal responses to the human experience because there is a part of us that maybe still wants to have more control by assuming that we can do everything by the power of our conscious mind like society tells us. Yeah. No, for sure. And I think that you're spot on. It, it, it's, it's confronting work. It's confronting work because to, to be able to say, number one, I'm not operating as <laughs> one identity. I mean, you know, that's like, whoa, what, whoa, what are you talking about? But also <laughs> the idea that we didn't catch it, right? No, no. I know, I know about myself. I know, I know all my nooks and crannies and, you know, to be able to, to, to not only acknowledge, but to embrace the unconscious parts of ourselves 
it is a practice and an exercise in uncertainty and lack of control, right? And so again, yeah, if the system is aggravated and already feeling unsafe, that can be really confronting work, which I think, I think is why, and maybe we can, maybe we can veer into this here, but I think is why it's so important to have a safe other person, right? This is where the compassionate witness becomes vital to this work. Because if we're alone, we're, we're going to overwhelm ourselves, right? If we have this kind of existential feeling of aloneness and emptiness, which often we do if we have a history of trauma or, or pain or frustrating um, relationships, there is a sense of aloneness. I'm in this alone. And so creating a compassionate witness, whether we are able to find that in our external world or we go purposely create that in, in our internal world, um, that I have found is the bridge between conscious and unconscious is being able to learn the skills of compassionate witness so that when those things come up, we don't have to push them back down. We can welcome them in and say, yeah, yeah, that's a part of me. Yeah, that's here. Yeah, that's what I'm feeling. That's what I'm experiencing. And I'm going to just observe it and watch it. And it's okay. Um, I don't need to change it. But without that skill, which, which does take practice and is something we need to learn, then we are at risk of consistently pushing away even that which we already feel shame over pushing away. <laughs> totally, totally. And I think there might be some people that are listening right now that might say, oh, that sounds all well and good, but I've never had that. So mm-hmm. I don't think I'll ever get to that point. So to, if, if you're listening and you feel that way, um, I just want to say that I have felt that way for many years, and I never thought that the compassionate witness could be developed to a point where it could sustain or sustain me, or I had no evidence that it could exist within me at all. So I didn't think it could exist. And that's a logical, I think, uh, conclusion to come away from if you've never had something, right? So yeah, it's not your reality. (laughs) Exactly. So, so why are you going to tell me to that treasure exists on an island where I've never found it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would like to ask you, was there a point where you didn't, what made you start to believe in the compassionate witness and uh, how, how would you advise people to start that process from a place doesn't, or a place that embodies the fact that even the compassionate witness is not a golden ticket to the world of post nirvana bliss whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well let me touch on that and then i'll answer your first question i mean i think that that is learning to reparent ourselves through the compassionate witness can also be an elusive sort of is this the place is this where i will arrive where i no longer have pain i no longer feel frustration i no longer have these experiences and i and i i say this so compassionately and so lovingly, but I'm also popping the bubble, is that we will always experience pain. Always. It is a part of life. Our goal is not to eradicate pain. Our goal is to learn how to hold it, right? Because in pain, there is beauty, there is depth, there is, there is both life to be lived in the underworld and the top world, right? And so we can find so much to the underworld, but if we don't know how to navigate it and we feel alone, we never get to swim into those depths. We never get to find all the treasure that is actually there because we are too afraid to go. 
And so the compassionate witness does not guarantee a life of no pain. (laughs) It does, however, guarantee that we will be able to be present with that pain. We will be able to hold it. And it does decrease the intensity of it because, again, we know that in order for something to feel overwhelming, we have to feel alone. That is how the human brain operates. And so when we are no longer alone, yes, we are in pain, but it's okay. We are still within what's known as our window of capacity or window of tolerance. So A, there's that, right? Let me just like, I just want to throw that out there. I, 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 I both feel sad and also really giddy at popping that bubble <laughs> because it's such a, it's such a pet peeve of mine within the wellness world that there will be a day that you will just wake up and everything will be great and happy and blah, it's just no. <laughs> but that being said, kind of circling back around. Um, yeah. If, if we've never had that, how would we know it exists? How would we know what to do? How would we know that it could be something that we want or need? Right. And so you know, my own journey, I absolutely, I came, I grew up in a situation where I, I was abandoned by my father um, at five, like physically he, he just, he left. And my mother was a wonderful woman, but she worked, she had to work, you know, all the time. And so there was a lot of emotional neglect there as well as physical um, and experienced multiple traumas after that. So insecure attachment along with both de- developmental and shock trauma. So life was hard. You know, life felt shitty for a lot of my life, severe anxiety that came out of that. And so I remember coming to this work and finding places or places where people would talk about things like self-love and compassion and, (laughs) you know, all that good stuff. The big three. Yes. Yes. You know, and, and having this experience of like, that's cute. (laughs) very dismissive, like very dismissive. That's cute. But what do you know? I, 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 you don't know me. I am broken. I am flawed. There's no way this works. Um, my life was not that easy. That's lovely for those of you who have, you know, that kind of thing. And for me, I had to learn about the intellectual, uh, scientific component of it in order to buy in. Right. That was just how, that's just how it worked for me. I couldn't find the buy-in with the more spiritual, metaphorical perspective. Now I love it. I love that perspective, but I had to find buy-in through intellect. So understanding what was going on in the brain when we reparent was really helpful for me. Um, Learning from people like Dan Siegel, who kind of fathered reparenting and neuroscience, and that intersection was really important for me. And in doing so, realize that while we may call that the compassionate witness, what's really happening in that moment is we are offering safety to our nervous system. We are offering safety to a nervous system that finds safety through connection. So that is really what the compassionate witness is all about. It is about creating self-connection through the nervous system and allowing the nervous system to regulate downward out of a place of stress and into a place of, of settling through, through connection, whether that is with another person that I can literally see and touch, or if it's through a person that I have created in my mind as a way to regulate myself. Does that make sense as to why that may be hard to buy in on? (laughs) Totally. Because you're going from, it sounds like a shift of going from a moralizing framework of I'm either good or bad, or I'm enough or not enough. I'm safe. I'm unsafe. I'm 
dangerous or unperfect, all these dualities that are still in this moral framework, but then going to a framework that's based more on biology. And you can slowly start to embody actually what it means to be a human being when you understand uh, a little bit more of the brain science and how your brain works and how we connect to ourselves on a physiological level, like you were talking about with the nervous system. It's almost like that skepticism that you were talking about of, that's cute, but you don't know me. Some of that can be offset, turn into compassion for yourself because this is, I can relate so much to what you're saying about have needing the intellectual part to buy in because that that was the part that was maybe the most inflamed or injured but it also is like you were talking about before part of the source of there's a lot of resources there that that can be um, turned into something that is not pointing the pain back at itself and saying that it's the reason that it exists mm-hmm. and um, I did a session of of breath work one point and one of the insights that that came to me after that just stuck out so much was you can it's easier to be compassionate to to yourself when you realize that our human capacity to experience pain often outweighs our ability to make sense of that pain absolutely because before that you think everything's your fault if you're feeling pain you're the cause of it and you're the effect and it's just a feedback loop of i'm hurting and i'm the reason i'm hurting and i'm the reason that i'm the reason that i'm hurting that goes back to everything that i did when i tripped on the 8th grade cafeteria and the lunch tray went everywhere you know it's like going from a place slowly from moralization of your humanity which is almost a default setting um, in our culture to a place that understands that we don't always need to be working in the intellectual side and that a lot of the things that we might have internalized are might be misattributed uh, to things that we believed were our fault, but are actually just a fault of, uh, or, or just a consequence of being human in a world that denies our humanity without that being uh, dismissive that, you know, I'm not trying to dismiss the the suffering, but that we can start to be open to the places where that is true. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I love what you said there of, of <clears throat> understanding that life is painful, doesn't dismiss suffering. That is not a life is painful, get over it. And I don't hear you saying that. And I love that you pointed that out because it's, it's, it's life is painful and yes, we, there is suffering. And yes, because of that, we have to learn how to hold it both as a culture and as individuals and as family systems, right? And it is a acknowledgement that that exists because so much of our culture pathologizes pain, pathologizes um, anything other than happiness, which is kind of you know, an elusive term anyway. But, but anything other than joy is pathologized as A, something is wrong and something is wrong with you. And when we're children, we're more apt to internalize anyway, because that's just the lens we view the world through. We are inherently narcissistic, and that's a good thing at that point, right? We are learning how to get our dependency needs met. And so there is a very inward focus, but that also means that we are internalizing things. What does this mean about me? Oh, this means I'm a shitty person, (laughs) all right? Or this means that I'm broken or that I'm not doing it right. And so I love that perspective of, when we step out of the blame shame model, right? Shame being, I blame myself. 
blame being, I blame you. This is all your fault. You did this to me. And we step out of that. That's a really cool space where we step into the complexity that you just talked about of, I don't know why this happened, but it did. Life is hard sometimes. Stuff happens. There are painful moments. And it doesn't mean anything about you or the other person. It just was. Now, how can I hold you in this place where you're hurting, where you have needs? How can we get through this moment and find ourselves on the other side of that because we've gone through that full process where there is a takeaway of wisdom? Because that is what I think pain offers. It offers wisdom, right? But we've got to be able to process through it, understand that it's normal, be with whatever it is that's coming up, allow it to do that. And then we walk away wiser every time. And I mean, isn't that kind of just, if there is a point to life, (laughs) isn't that the point just to learn and grow and experience, right? Totally. And then take that away and share it in whatever capacity feels meaningful for us, whether that is through, you know, something like I do, or whether it's through art. I mean, I believe that art is an expression of wisdom gained. You know, just this is what I've learned about the world. Let me show it to you, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, I love that you, you tied together all those parts because there is, there's so much there. This is lifelong work. It's not a mindset that you can, you know, read in a self help book and feel. For me, this is, and I'm not saying I've arrived to a certain point, but I've gotten to a point where I can hold and make sense of my pain and my suffering in a way that I didn't think was possible during so many years that felt so hopeless. And that looked like lots of years of therapy, lots of trying new things out artistically in relationships. Um, there's a lot of suffering there, but the, 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 the mindsets and the things that you're talking about are the, it's, it, it sounds like learning to honor yourself and the complexity of being human that we're never taught. and learning that a lot of the internalizations that we've had made um, through are not through the fault are not our fault they're evolutionarily parts of our brain that are adapting to an environment that often takes advantage of the fact that our brain operates in the way that it works yeah I'm on a so going from a moralization of every of I feel like a lot of self-doubt is just moralization that's predominant in the society turned inward. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain amount of self-doubt that's going to be inherent. And we should give ourselves permission to, or we should hope to give ourselves permission to validate any reality that we're currently experiencing. Yes. Um, But there comes a point, yeah, (laughs) but there comes a point when you're, they're no longer, and this is in fleeting moments, this is not a constant, but you're no longer needing to qualify uh, your art and your expression and your humanity in order for it to be worthy or accepted or be a work of genius. Yes. I love that. Oh my gosh. My heart's exploding (laughs) that you no longer need to qualify, right? That's worthiness. That's the place where you aren't different, right? You're not fundamentally changed. You didn't become I don't know, just this like glowing orb of perfection all of a sudden. You just no longer need to qualify yourself because there is an inherent understanding like, I have a right to be here because I am. How do I know? Because I am, right? And it is the 
validation of whatever reality you are experiencing as an expression of life moving through whatever it's doing. Yeah. And I think there was something else you said I kind of wanted to touch on. I kind of forgot what it was. Darn. But that's okay. Yeah. But, but I love that idea of no longer having to qualify yourself. And I think it's important to note that so much of the reason that we do that is because of our attachment, our need to attach, right? Like if we are forced to choose between authenticity and attachment, right? Staying connected to the people that we need or being ourselves. And if there's a, if there's a dichotomy there where we have to choose and we're not allowed to do both, then we will choose attachment every time. That is our biology. We will not decide to choose authenticity now until we are adults and we can learn. I no longer am dependent upon anyone else for approval. I'm no longer dependent on anyone else for validation. I can do that. And as such, I can now choose authenticity if I'm being forced to choose. Hopefully, hopefully we have the kinds of relationships where we don't have to choose. But if we do, we can learn how to do that as adults. And that is that process of individuation and sovereignty where we disconnect from attachments that disallow our authenticity and pull back into the space where we can self-validate, self-honor, self-accept, and understand that while it is painful not to have the attachment, that ultimately authenticity is our, our greatest joy in that moment. Yes. And this is, that is so beautiful. It, what I'm hearing is that you can't have authenticity or you can't, your body and your mind do not, are not able to embody authenticity until you have a guarantee of safety. Yes, fully. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a beautiful way of saying it. And so then you can't, if you tell somebody to, that the answer is be yourself, like you were talking about with attachment, if you're presented with the dichotomy of life or death in an attachment-based relationship, you're always going to choose life, even if that means denying a certain amount of your authenticity in order to make sure that you're alive, that you're getting fed, yeah. that your needs are getting met. And this is happening in the mind of a child. You know, So there's, you can have compassion for the um, unconscious choice that was made by a, a child in a child's mind. And you can also it's almost the case for compassion is very, it's complex, but it is, it makes sense when, if you've been denied safety in so many aspects of your life, no wonder it's a struggle to embody a certain amount of authenticity, whether that's in your internal experience, your external experience, your art, your humanity, your vision of yourself, safety is, and you can't, this is another, another part of what I wanted to touch on based on what you said is that you can't speak English to a nervous system. You can't say some words and expect that to, you know, fundamentally alter the neurons that are in your brain to a point that you want to get to. Yes. Yes, I do. Which is why so much of talk therapy has failed people in the past. And I'm not knocking talk therapy, but it has failed a lot of people who store these core shame-based beliefs, which are really body-based beliefs, right? It's kind of like trying to it's trying to come at like a, I don't know, a cement wall with like a tiny kid's hammer. It's just like, you're, you're never going to break it down. Like it's not going to happen. Right. And so you're, what you're saying is we can't approach bottom-up processes with a top-down approach. Yes. And, right. And so, yes, we cannot use, we cannot mantra our way out of shame. It's not going to work because we are operating on two completely different systems here. You are trying to use your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain responsible for thought and thinking to access and to talk to your body 
and your emotional experience and your middle and back brains. Well, that that's not how it works. So we need to find ways of co-regulating with ourselves through self-parenting techniques that allow our body to, to come into resonance with our mind. Because so many people will say, I know logically that I'm worthy, but when I go to feel it, all I feel is shame. All I feel is worthlessness. That's that body-mind disconnect. And so in order to be able to access um, belief on all planes, we've got to be able to work with those parts of us. And they are usually childlike because these beliefs were formed in childhood. So again, having that compassion, learning to speak to ourselves lovingly, learning to access our bodies through embodied movements like rocking and soothing and pressure and holding and um, all of those things that signal safety to our nervous system, right? Soft, low voices, speaking gently, right? All of these things are signals of safety. And when we learn how to create safety in our lives, boom, then we can be authentic because we're no longer having to, to choose. Will I be loved if I'm authentic, right? Totally. And it's so many important things in what you just said. And I wanted to relate to um, the fact that you said it's like uh, trying to, talking about you can't mantra yourself out of shame. I was in, I did CBT for a few years and it, CBT scientifically can be, is proved to be very effective in a lot of, in helping people deal with a lot of problems. But for some people, it's not the right fit. For me, it wasn't the right fit. And it wasn't in, in hindsight, I think that's because like you were saying, if you're only tending to the leaves of a tree in talking about thoughts that have already arisen and trying to change those thoughts in by what are sometimes are called dysfunctional thoughts. Yeah. It's like, you're telling me that the thoughts that have already arisen, uh, you're shaming the thoughts that have already arisen from a place that we haven't addressed what the root is yet. So that just put a further light, like loop of feedback onto my own confusion for a long time because yeah. I was, my mind was like a battlefield of trying to wrestle with thoughts that I thought were wrong for existing and that I was not able to respond to in a way. So <laughs> it's almost like, exactly. And it's yeah. just more- To effectively <laughs> neutralize the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's like. It's like the Cold War yeah. in your brain and you're yeah. waiting for the detonation to go off. But you can't, uh, you can't treat the tree by watering the leaves if the trauma is happening at the root. Yes. There's gonna you have to address the roots, which I think is why trauma informed care is so incredible, especially body based trauma informed care, because we're getting at the root, right? Like, yeah, CBT is wonderful for behavioral therapy. If that's all we're trying to do, that's great. I have no problem, right? There's top down and bottom up; they're both important. That again, that's that whole. It's that it's that holistic perspective of integration, integrating both. Because what we know about the healthiest brains is that all all of them are working. <laughs> we want our back brain and our front brain and our middle brain. We all of them working. We don't want to we don't want to um, you know build one up to the detriment of the others. But that's usually what's happening is that our executive function has become over dominant for so many of us, and our access to our emotional and sensory systems become diminished as a result of not wanting to be in our bodies because it's scary and it's overwhelming and it's stressful and it's anxious and it's angry and it's out of control. And we don't know how to do with it. And we don't have the, the self-regulating capacity to handle that. So we just 
shut it off. Right. But as we, again, as we integrate and we learn that both are important, again, there's more room, right? There's more room in ourselves for ourselves. Because I think essentially what you're talking about is just creating a safe relationship with self. Yeah. Creating safe relationship with self where we're not going to be the ones who are harping on and criticizing and judging our parts. Maybe that's happening outside of us. That happens. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. people, people judge people. This is not about pretending that that doesn't happen and it's painful. People reject people. It happens. It's painful. This is not do this work and you will never be judged. <laughs> you probably will be. And it's okay because my relationship with myself is strong. Yeah. That's what we're trying to create here. Because strong relationship with self becomes the bedrock upon which I bring myself into all my other relationships. It allows me to expect the same kind of care, the same kind of compassion, the same kind of respect from others as I, as I give to myself. And that is when I both get to be safe in the world and safe to be myself in the world, which is kind of that ultimate authenticity. Yes. And if we're at the beginning of that process, which is a lifelong process, mm-hmm. it's we, the thing that I can, I can only start to appreciate more in hindsight now is that, like you said, the judgments, especially internal judgments at the beginning, this is going to be especially difficult to create a safe place for a self that's felt unsafe for so long. Yeah. So you can expect that there's going to be, um, so please be gentle with yourself the same way you would to a child to your, imagine yourself as a child, you know, that you're holding. There are so many different exercises that you can do for that. But at the beginning, you can, you can, and throughout the whole process, make space for the thoughts that are coming up, even if they're critical. You can make mm-hmm. space for a thought that's critical without needing to believe or, or take away that it is credible just because that thought exists, because most thoughts are just unconscious reactions. You know, that there's a humbling aspect of that, that Sam Harris says you can't choose your thoughts because that would require that you think your thoughts before you think them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And free will. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that there is, this is, this is truly the process of coming to embody a level of free will that we didn't have when we were younger through having agent safety. I feel like creates agency that allows us to be more authentic in ways that we choose and can extend outwards, whether that's through ourself and movement or art or anything that is the bounty of created safety that we have uh, committed to in an extended period of time that, that honors all of our humanity. Yeah. Oh, man. oh gosh. So, <laughs> so much good stuff in there. <laughs> I feel like I love what you said, though, about safety creates agency. Because essentially that's what we're saying is, is acceptance creates change, right? Mm. So it's, that's like another way of saying that, which I actually like better, but it is, it is, we cannot move forward into any different choice, into any choice until we feel safe enough to make that choice, right? And yes. so in order for us to make any changes that we want to make, which change is okay, change is fun, change is interesting, it's, it's process, it's evolution. But in order to do that, we must accept it because acceptance is a form of safety, right? What is safety? Maybe that's a great place to start. Maybe that's the place if you're listening and you're like, well, what the, what the hell are they talking about? Right? (laughs) (laughs) Like 
let's get clear on what safety is for you because it is different for each person. What feels safe for most people includes some combination of acceptance, validation, empathy, uh, physical safety, protection, guidance, you know, um, nurturance, compassion. These are sort of the foundational experiences we need to have from others or from ourselves that create a feeling of, I belong, I'm accepted, I'm safe, right? But once you start to explore that, you can get really curious. What makes me feel safe? Maybe I've never known safety, right? That was me. I had legitimately never known safety. I came into the world straight up birth trauma, you know, major C-section, almost dying, like 32 hour labor. It just, it was stressful. I've never known safety for a day in my life. So I was like, I don't, I don't have any clue what you're talking about. But over time, we can take that intellectual kind of cognitive approach. Well, what is safety? What does it look like in my body? What does it feel like? And as the resistance comes up, like you mentioned, and it will, right? Resistance often sounds like criticism. It often sounds like um, suspicion. It often sounds like guilt. It often sounds like disbelief, dismissiveness. When those parts come up, again, just noting, naming and noting. That is that foundational acceptance that creates safety. I'm noticing that I'm dismissing myself. (laughs) I'm noticing that I criticize myself. And then that I also criticize myself for criticizing myself. (laughs) If nowhere else, start with naming and acknowledging. And that can open us up to a greater level of acceptance over time that that is more welcoming. But if we can't get to that welcoming place, because we've had so much self-loathing and so much self-criticism, the naming and acknowledging can be kind of a neutral bridge to that place of welcoming. And as you're going along that process, one thing that's been really helpful for me is to create a lot of art in a short period of time, because I think that the art that we create, you know, our relationship with our art is an extension of the relationship that we have with ourselves. It's not, um, you know, my, my personal belief is that we are, there's way too much emphasis on each on the individual piece of art and its merits as in, in, you know, it's more about the source of our expression and what we're willing to express. And the less qualifiers we put on to everything we make, the more we're able to experiment and create the safe, the sense of safety through what I've heard somebody call disconfirming evidence. Because in the beginning of this process, you're making a lot of art or you're expressing yourself or you're just being yourself in everyday situations, but you're coming at it from a newfound place of safety. You almost are proving to yourself is not as dangerous as your nervous system rightfully has the impression that it is based on past experience. So you're coming at this and wanting to, you know, for me, the, the, Art has been the most therapeutic when it's been a way to just notice the way that I'm criticizing myself astronomically for details that nobody else is going to notice or that are related to the expectations that I have about myself and what I need to be. It's almost like the art can offset or eventually offset my belief of who I need to be, why I need to be that way. And a way that I can start to realize that a lot of these expectations are just me trying to feel safe more than trying to 
make something that is going to be loved by everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, that reminds me of the first time I ever did abstract art. (laughs) Tell me about it. Yeah. So a little quick, quick personal story. So, so I, when I was a kid, I found art, um, specifically painting through an art teacher who was like, maybe the only teacher ever to believe in me, you know, like I was a very intelligent child, but I was very much a like fuck the system kind of kid. So (laughs) I got a bunch of bad grades and teachers didn't like me. They were just like, God, you're so hard. I was like, I'm not doing homework. Homework is homework is ridiculous. It doesn't teach me anyway. That was that. (laughs) So I found this art teacher who just loved me for who I was. He was so gentle and so encouraging. So I, I fell in love with art. But my perfectionistic tendencies born out of my trauma really shone through. So the way that I was attracted to art was through realism and really needed things to be accurate, <laughs> like absolutely down to the nth degree, this shadow needs, you know, so that was the way that I loved art. And I remember um, meeting some artists in college and listening to them talking about abstract art and how realism was not art. It was just copying. And I was devastated. (laughs) I'm not a real artist. Like, oh my God, (laughs) you know, just so much shame and embarrassment. And they were like, you know, do you do art? And I was like, no, no, I I super don't do art. (laughs) So it took me years. I mean, and we're talking, it's, but it was like a decade between that moment. And when I sat down to create this piece of abstract art and I love, I love abstract art but I'd never been able to let go enough to do it because my system neurocepted danger. Neuroception is when we unconsciously um, perceive danger in a situation or safety, right? But it's unconscious. So for me, letting go, very dangerous. Can't let go. Going to create something awful. No one's going to like me. Be rejected. Alarm bells are going off. Yeah. So I sit down and I've got this determination to create this piece of art. And I'm like, what the, what, how the fuck do you sit down and put on a piece of canvas and create something? Like there's nothing in me. There's nothing in me. But at this point in time, I had, I had come to this somatic work. So I was like, well, there is something in me. What's in me. There's agitation. I'm agitated. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And I'm so full of loathing. So I allowed my arm to express that, right? Like, I'm like, I'm just going to just, I'm, I'm pounding at this point. I'm pounding on the canvas. I am just, I've got music in. I am like so overwhelmed and I am just thrashing this canvas. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden I sit down and I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's taking form. It's, it's, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing it. I realize I'm doing it. So that's the disconfirming evidence, right? I'm doing the thing I didn't think I could do. Oh my God. And I allow it to keep going. And I come from this really embodied place and basically threw on a piece of canvas every self-critical thought I'd ever had. And it turned out to be my favorite piece of art. I mean, I, I love it. It's still my favorite piece of art. But I didn't create something, right? I expressed what was already there. And that for me was the moment it clicked where it was, oh... I can be with what is. And when I am with what is, what comes out is art. And that created that disconfirming evidence that I didn't have to do it right. I didn't have to do it well. I didn't have to do it at all. You know what I mean? So beautifully said. I mean, what an experience and the relief that you're talking about 
is enormous because then it go, it goes to a place where I am safe to express things and emotions and feelings. Basically, I'm safe to express the totality of the human experience as it flows through me at any given time without any qualifiers for how it needs to look, feel how people need to respond to it. Everything that I'm experiencing is valid internally and I can prove and give myself permission uh, to extend a hand to the experience that I'm already experiencing Mm -hmm. by creating something that is coming from that place. I mean, then you're just reinforcing safety to yourself on so many levels. And then at the end of it, you have a memento of the process mm-hmm. and sometimes it looks good. Yeah. Sometimes it looks bad, Yeah, <laughs> but, and, and I'm glad it looked good for you in that yeah, moment. Yeah, it happened to. <laughs> yeah. It, it there's, but there's no guarantee of that. Yeah. And that's such a more holistic, humane, uh, beautiful, complex. Um, it just feels like that space is a place of abundance for lack of a better word, instead yeah. of, trying to find the little microscopic piece of genius and turn that into something. It's almost the whole experience is already genius. And the expression is just speaking to that mystery and embodying it. And you can do that without needing to guarantee or will the result into something that reflects Mm -hmm. what you think it needs to be. Which is healing. Right? Yes. That in and of itself, being able to step into complexity is so healing and paradoxically grounding for our bodies. It's weird. I don't totally know how to explain it other than to say when our right and left hemispheres integrate and we are able to see both expansiveness and contraction at the same time, all of a sudden there is wholeness. And it's like, let's talk about mind blowing. It's like, You don't even need to do mushrooms to get there. It's like, (laughs) boom, (laughs) you do some art, you know, but truly to express what is, like you said, is to self, it's, it's to reinforce the sense of safety because I'm now able to be what and who I am in this moment. And that is okay. And from that place, I mean, literally all possibility opens up. Totally. And that's, one one th- way that you could start trying to do this for yourself is straight up set a kitchen timer for 15 minutes and your only goal is to experiment and when i say experiment i mean you're not putting any qualifications on what it needs to look like you just commit to doing whatever feels right to you commit to whatever intuition you feel like you can connect to in that moment Wherever, like you said, when you mentioned just letting your arm express itself because that's what felt like the right thing to do, that I think experimentation is the highest and purest form of creativity. And like you said, then it's starting to take form. You can, you can start to get an idea of maybe the direction you want to take the expression into yeah. if that's a part of the process you want to do after you've given yourself enough safety to freely experiment like a child in a sandbox that's just happy he's holding a shovel and can make a castle with it. Yes. And if you're the child in the sandbox who freaks out (laughs) because you don't know how to play correctly, because that was me. In that moment, I want to give you permission to talk to that part. Hey, I see you right now. I know you're scared. It's okay. 
no one's going to laugh at you. No one's going to be mad at you. No one is going to judge you. Even if you do something kind of silly, we can laugh together, whatever, right? I want, like, I want to give those people permission to bring in an immense amount of compassion for the children in them who couldn't play because they didn't feel safe enough to play. Cause that is very real for a lot of my clients. So if you're in the kitchen and let's say you turn on some music and you set a timer and you're doing the thing that Jesse says to do and you're like, okay. And then you get there and you're like, fuck, what do I do? I just can't do anything. Name that. I'm frozen. I can't do anything. That's what's happening for me right now. That is what's expressing through me right now. So much fear and criticism. I can't move. Cool. Okay. And do you notice maybe even just here, like how it softens? The moment that you bring it in, it softens and that allows the energy to start moving again. So yeah, even if you're the kid who can't play, it's okay. <laughs> that, that was me too. Um, so we, we would have been two kids playing in a sandbox, not playing correctly or both crying, but there would have been going back to what you said, there's, I want to touch on this based on when, when you were just recounting that it's, it's almost like then creativity or expression is just learning how to be a child again or embody your childhood self with the wisdom and lived experience of an adult. Fully. I mean, I think that there's no, I don't, maybe pure joy, but I don't know of any other fully childlike experience than creativity, right? Like that is to be a child is to create literally both in an embodied way. We are moving from embryonic to adult. There is a creation that is taking place in our body. So we are the, we are literally the embodied expression of creation, but also that is just the way that our brains are working because we are so right brain oriented as children, where we are living in the complex and the nuance and the dreamlike state. And as we grow, obviously we move into that left brain state and we, we become more linear and more mm, kind of boxed in and that's okay too. But to return to that state is actually to return to the childhood. And if we did not feel safe in childhood, then we must go back and create that safety for those child parts so they can do what they were meant to do, you know? Because there's so much compassionately that's that there are so many imperatives for why that is such a that that sounds like a, such a self-soothing activity and mm. there are so many artists myself included um that when they're not creating feel so much internal tension so oh, yeah. when, when you're talking about what you just mentioned it sounds like there's an element of this where we going from the embryonic to the adult and going from the start of a piece to the finish of a piece, those are happening in parallel. And maybe the mm-hmm. expression and the creative work that's happening is a, a way of soothing the natural uncertainty that we embody and point at ourselves when we don't know what to do with it. So it's almost a release valve. And when, not only is that valve released, but it can turn into possibility and we can make something out of something that would otherwise consume us potentially. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's I think that's one of the reasons why the creative process is such an imperative part of trauma healing too. Because it does allow the release of that um activation energy within us to have somewhere to go. And and I believe, I don't I don't know if everyone believes this, but I firmly believe that everybody is creative. Like I believe that to be human is to be creative. Now that creativity might look different 
It might not look like art. It might look like something completely different. But I do believe that we all possess this, this drive to express, right? And, and, so, and so, yeah, giving ourselves permission to open that valve and to see what it is that's all up in here <laughs> and where it wants to go and what it wants to do um, and learning to feel that from an embodied perspective, I think can be a really integral part of learning to connect to your creativity. You know, like even just standing still for a moment, noticing what's happening inside of you. Is my heart beating? You know, am I shaking? Is, is something vibrating? Does something want to move? Um, is there an emotional experience? Can I feel anything? You know, and that's usually enough <laughs> to just let stuff happen, to get that energy moving. And then it does what it wants to do. <laughs> exactly. And there's no right answer to no. that. And I mean, I'll, uh, there was an experience maybe eight or nine months ago where it was the first time I can remember sitting down and just saying, what do I want to make right now? What do I want to write about? where it wasn't coming from a place that was aggressive. Mm -hmm. It was from a place of what is something that I've been thinking about lately that mm -hmm. feels important to explore, even if I don't know what that's going to look like once it takes form. Because you can, you can have uh, just the feeling is enough. It, the, the form does not need to justify the feeling. The form of the art does not need to justify your birth your existence. It doesn't need to justify other than what it already is. There's no qualifications there. Oh my God. I have chills, <laughs> especially around the birth, right? Your form does not have to justify your birth. Oh my God. You have the right to be here because you're here. Yes. Which means that you have the right to create because you are. Yeah. Wow. So that, good. Just soaking it in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a relief to uh, to come to, and I know we're coming up on time here. So, um, wow, that was this was fun <laughs> so collaborating great. with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we just did yeah. the things we were talking about. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so much fun. That was really fun. Thank you. Wow. Okay. So before we totally um, wrap up, I want to encourage people listening to please follow Cyana's work on Instagram. Um, you can follow her. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's at Cyana Wand. Her writing is just a beautiful um, expression of what it means to be human. All the things we talked about today, you can find her insights about embodiment, about being compassionate, about reparenting, all of these things. And she also has a course that is coming out uh, about reparenting that I'm going to link to in the show notes. It is going to be opening very soon. So if you're interested, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll put the links in there and you can sign up for her newsletter and be notified when that comes out. Sayana, is there anything else that you would want to say based on the things that we've talked about or to just address some of the listeners who have listened to this conversation? What message would you want to give them uh, to leave with them with before they go on to the rest of their day. Mm, gosh, yeah. You know, I think the message that I, that I come back to round and round again is, and it's so simple, but it's just, it's okay. 
it's okay. Like, it's okay. You know, whatever it is, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're thinking, wherever you're at, it's your life and it's no one else's. And that makes every single part of it okay. And I know that that seems simple and a little bit understated, but I think it's the most pure encapsulation of the work that I do with people is to remind them of the idea that who they are is not only okay, it's, it's perfect. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I have to say to everybody. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Again, encourage you to check out Cyana's work on Instagram and on her website and to keep an eye out for her reparenting course that is coming out. I've taken her course before, a separate course, and it was an amazing experience. So I highly encourage you to, to check that out. And thank you so much, Sana. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. That was so much fun. Thank you for listening. And thanks again to Sayana for joining me. If you like this episode and want to get access to new episodes as soon as they come out, be sure to subscribe in whichever podcast app you're listening in right now. Also, if you want to help us get the word out, rating our show and Apple Podcasts really helps other people find it. Again, you can find all the links to Cyana's work and my work in the show notes. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to say hi, you can reach me on Instagram at jesse.sussman. That's at J-E-S-S-E dot S-U-S-S-M-A-N. You can also email me at expressionoverperfection at gmail.com. And you can find us online at expressionoverperfection.com. Thanks again for listening. And I'm looking forward to sharing the next episode with you soon. Take care.